isn't it really complicated to build web apps? What if it was just way simpler to build an awesome app that was fast, that was really responsive, that stored all the data people care about, was easier for you to develop, faster, simpler, less ops maintenance stuff? The data ownership stuff just falls out as a consequence. Could we leverage the power of databases and the power of the local first architecture to cut through a lot of the complexity of building modern web apps and make it simpler? Welcome to the Local First FM podcast. I'm your host, Johannes Schickling, and I'm a web developer, a startup founder, and love the craft of software engineering. For the past few years, I've been on a journey to build a modern, high-quality music app using web technologies. And in doing so, I've been falling down the rabbit hole of local-first software. This podcast is your invitation to join me on that journey. In this episode, I'm speaking to Jeffrey Litt, who's currently a researcher at Ink and Switch. Jeffrey has worked on many interesting research projects such as Riffle, Cambria, and Embark. In our conversation today, we're talking about the ideas and goals that motivated Riffle, which include expressing an app as a query, fast synchronous reactivity, and unifying UI state and app data in a single system. Before getting started, also a big thank you to Expo and Crab Nebula for supporting this podcast. And now my interview with Jeffrey. Welcome Jeffrey to the show, so excited to have you. Thanks, it's great to be here. I mean, you and I have been working together now for a few years, but let's rewind time a little bit and maybe start where you and I have first crossed paths. This was, I think, the end of 2020, and you've been just wrapping up your first project at Ink and Switch, which was about Cambria. So would you mind motivating what the project was about? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a researcher that works on a topic called malleable software. Um, where the idea is, can we let everybody customize their software tools to meet their own personal needs rather than everybody changing the way they work to match standardized software tools that other people develop, right? It turns out one of the core problems in this space is wrangling data schemas. So imagine, you know, you're using your favorite to-do app, I'm using my favorite to-do app, and we decide we want to work on a project together. What are the options? We either have to pick the same to-do app or... If we want to each keep using our own favorite to-do app, those apps need to have some way of talking to one another and sharing a data representation, right? And it turns out that this is a pretty gnarly problem because those data representations our two apps want to use might be different in subtle ways. You know, perhaps your app has subtasks and mine doesn't or something like that. And so the goal of Cambria was to explore this problem and try to figure out could we find a way to enable collaboration across diverse tools while also not requiring all of our tools to share exactly the same data schema and all agree on everything? And it turns out that this is actually a sort of a pervasive problem across local first software in a bunch of different contexts. This problem pops up in many shapes and forms. Even the simple case of like having a centralized application written by one developer in a local first context, uh, schema migrations and upgrades often become uh, a lot harder than they are in sort of a server-based environment. So the Cambria project, again, was about sort of first just recognizing that this problem exists everywhere and that it's really uh, holds back progress uh, in terms of interoperability and schema management in local first apps. And then we sort of prototyped a solution to it, which was you can think of it sort of as a live data translation system where as different tools are working on shared data, there's a layer underneath the individual tools that helps translate data formats between all the various tools in such a way that each app can feel like it's just working with the data representation it wants, but actually 
under the hood where we have some sort of translation layer that's uh, you know sort of serving as the glue that lets different versions of the same app collaborate or lets even different apps entirely collaborate with one another. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant motivation. I remember like having read the the essay the first time was super well illustrated and super well motivated. It it sort of almost provoked me into re-implementing a version of Cumbria myself back then. This is how much it, it, it kind of spoke to me since I remember the, the first version of Cambria was then sort of like a DSL expressed in YAML. I am more someone who's working mostly in TypeScript. So I remember uh, re-implementing a small version in, in TypeScript. So yeah, I, I love that, that problem statement. And so I think it's also interesting how it fits into this broader umbrella of malleable software. And turns out, looking back over the last few years, this is not the only project you've done in the realm of malleable software. So which other problem spaces have you run into while pursuing this, this goal of malleable software? Yeah, I think it's a fascinating space, you know. The way I got into it was originally was actually I was working at a startup building normal SaaS software. And, you know, we were doing what SaaS companies do, which is that you have 30 people in a room somewhere designing interfaces that thousands and thousands of people thousands of miles away are supposed to use. Right. We were we were, in our case, designing education software for schools. And I just remember talking to all these teachers and principals and all these different schools, and they had very specific requests often, as customers do. And of course, uh, in SaaS, typically the answer is no. You have to be disciplined and say, I can't change the wording of that button just for you. Um, I'm not going to add a setting for that. But I started to find this very frustrating and wanted to explore what would it feel like if software worked differently. Um, and you know, I think there's an interesting connection to Local First because I remember coming across the original Ink and Switch essay about Local First when I was starting to think about this stuff. And I think they said briefly in the essay something about how it seems like an intriguing foundation if you have data locally and maybe even code locally available um, that gives you a little bit more access and control over your software than if you have a cloud SaaS architecture. And that that sentence really sort of sparked a bunch of thoughts in my brain that have led, you know, I think a lot of my work, the way I see it is sort of at the intersection of how do we use the local first architecture to enable more malleable software for end users is a theme that I care a lot about. So Cambria was definitely one project in that line. I've worked on uh, a couple other projects in this space. One project I worked on early in my grad school research career was a little browser extension called Wildcard. And the idea was what if you could access the data underneath any web page in a spreadsheet, uh, but it's not only a read-only spreadsheet, you could even write to the spreadsheet and mod it yourself. So a very accessible way for normal people to make uh, their own browser extensions without programming. I, I love that. And and I think as a as a fun fact, this might have actually been the, the very first point where we've been put in touch because at that time I was also working on my little own Chrome extension, which was also kind of in a direction of malleable software. This was before I was even aware of the the term and like that broader field that was just motivated by my own frustration that I could, that the websites didn't quite work the way how I intended. So it just feels like we've been on, on similar paths there. And what you've been building with Wildcard was, was quite a step ahead of what I've been coming up with at that point. But uh, yeah, that well, um, yeah, I, you know, I remember one thing about that, that I think maybe is a preview of the way we've collaborated since then is that mine was 
a more speculative prototype of a of a interface design, but it wasn't particularly solidly implemented. And I remember you had this really uh, fancy uh, developer experience around customizing your extensions and stuff that I got inspired by. And so I think there's a, a fun interplay there we can get into later about kind of more speculative research versus engineering more solid versions of the idea. Yeah. So you've been working on Wildcard. Which other results that come out of your 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 overall research in, in that field? Yeah. So, um, you know, throughout the years, I've had the chance to work on a bunch of projects with uh, mostly with really awesome collaborators. One of the more recent projects, uh, which I, we actually worked on together, um, was the, the last project I worked on in, in grad school, which is called Riffle. And that was a project that uh, you and I worked on together with uh, Nicholas Schiefer um, and Daniel Jackson, my PhD advisor at MIT. And sort of the, I guess the origin story of Riffle is that Nicholas and I were having a bunch of conversations that revolved around sort of this idea of having a personal data store. So um, one way I think about cloud versus local first is that in local first software, one of the ideals is that you own your data. And these valuable thoughts that I'm having and artifacts that I'm producing in the digital world, they should feel like mine, just like a notebook I can carry around and you know have with me forever, right? Um, and there's this question of, great, if you, if you own your data, um, sure, you get longevity and control, but what about this ability to take arbitrary tools that I want to use and connect them to that personal data? This is something that's often really hard in SaaS because the data is locked away and maybe there's the APIs you want and maybe there's not, and maybe there's the partnership you want between the two tools you use, but maybe not. And we were talking about, you know, how would it feel if you had a local first data store with all your stuff in it and you could connect whatever app or tool you wanted to that existing data store that has all your stuff, right? What shape would that data store take? How would it work? How would you develop against it? And one hypothesis we wanted to explore, particularly because of Nicholas's background, which is in databases, uh, we wanted to sort of ask this question of what if you had a really powerful database that was designed for this purpose? Uh, maybe it could be based on relational databases and maybe the experience of building an app on that on that foundation could end up feeling really different from traditional software development in a bunch of ways. So that's kind of how we got into the Riffle work. That That's incredible. And if I remember correctly, uh, this was not the first time that Nicholas was also working on, on this field. He didn't just work on, on databases, but I think he was at, at Apple previously and was implementing similar systems, I think, related to, to iCloud and how Syncing works there. So yeah, I mean, th those are some pretty big ideal that is not a very common thing in the apps that, that I'm using. It's if, God forbid, something like Notion would shut down, like what, what would even happen to, to, to my data? So I would love to see that flip of like everything that I'm creatively producing is by default mine and turn around the relationship. But uh, it's not even that you wanted to, if from a, idealistic perspective push for that but i think you you took a step back and say okay what is even the technical foundation for that what would a prototype of that look like how did the project get off the off the ground yeah so one way that i think about this is exactly the way you put it about the difference between ideology and technical foundations i think that data ownership one of the reasons we don't have it is because it's hard to build apps that way it's not i think there are often companies that don't really have a strong desire to build a SaaS data moat. It just is kind of the default that is promoted by the way we naturally build stuff. 
And because it's so hard to build apps with data ownership, we don't get that many of them. And one of the, I think, most interesting potentials of local first as an area that I don't think has been fully realized yet is what if we could make it easier to build apps this way rather than harder, right? I think a lot of people in this space see that potential for this radical simplification of how we build stuff. Um, I think Peter, who was on the show, see, you know, has sort of inspired a lot of my thinking on that. I think Martin Kletman, who was one of the co-authors of the Local First piece, has given talks about how you sort of have this uh, many-layered cloud architecture. And in theory, it could be so much simpler if you didn't have to deal with all that stuff. But again, in practice, I think we're still getting there as a community. And the reality is we're, we're still maybe in the zone where it's harder today. And so, you know, one of the ways that I thought about the Riffle project and, you know, Nicholas and I and Daniel thought about it was, what if the pitch to an app developer for something like Riffle didn't start from ideology? It didn't start from you care about giving your users their data and providing interoperability, blah, blah, blah. The reality is for many people, these are not the most pressing concerns. What if we started instead from, hey, isn't it really complicated to build web apps? What if it was just way simpler to build an awesome app that was fast, that was really responsive, that stored all the data people care about, was easier for you to develop, faster, simpler, less ops maintenance stuff. The data ownership stuff just falls out as a consequence, right? So a lot of our Riffle work was focused on, could we leverage the power of databases and the power of the local first architecture to cut through a lot of the complexity of building modern web apps and make it simpler? And in service of that mission, a few of our starting principles were, um, can you think of an application as one giant database query? What I mean by that is instead of writing a ton of normal code that produces your UI, could you somehow push a lot of the work into an uh, optimized database that does a lot of heavy lifting and let it uh, produce UI states for you? Uh, another thing that couples really well with that is fast synchronous reactivity. So we had this idea that the data is already there on your device, throw away all the async crap that comes with web apps typically, you know, react suspense, network requests, and work with the data that's already there and uh, simplify just talking to it and querying it. And the last thing, our third principle was, can we take all these different kinds of state that typically end up in different systems and throw them in one? So your React UI state and your persistent local device local state and your synchronized multi-user state, can you just store them in one system? And then, you know, we like to think of it as maybe there's some setting checkboxes on each bit of state that tell you, should you share it or whatever, but just have one system that's capable of subsuming all those roles. And our hypothesis was that if you pulled all this off, it could feel really awesome to build apps and you would get both better apps for end users because they're fast and they work offline and they have all the local first goodness, but also you could get a better developer experience because you've removed a lot of the layers of, of traditional web apps. So this was a lot. And spoiler alert, that hypothesis that you've motivated, at least in my very case, paid off big time. So the developer experience for me as a developer is better. I hope that the end user experience will be better, partially also because I care a lot about performance and making things nice. But uh, to um, crack the chicken egg problem, of like, how do you even build better apps with this in the first place? What really was the, the motivation and the, the catalyst for me was not all the ideals of local first. Sure, I would love them, but that would not really make the difference for me, like start to work on an app and build in one architecture or another. But the more 
things I didn't have to do in the first place, the better, the more I could really focus on working on the app. And just to simplify the entire stack, your motivation to say like, hey, actually, why do you even need a server? Why do you need a backend for the thing? Ultimately, the app is, is working on your client. How about that being the starting point? That really spoke to me. And this drew me in as an app developer and where I believed in, in that mission. So yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I would love to, to dig more into the various principles that you've mentioned, since I think there's quite a bit of like interesting thinking behind each of those. If I recap it correctly, I think it was simplifying the inner workings of an app into uh, basically database queries, aka like complex SQL queries or however else you want to express it. Then the, the synchronous graph of typically how React works, et cetera coupling that directly together. And the third part, now oh, you got to remind me about the third part again, uh, but let's let's go through them like uh, one by one again and with a bit more detail. Absolutely. So, you know, the first principle I talked about is thinking of an application as a database query, right? And actually to throw a little more detail in there, it's not one database query. It's actually a graph of database queries with dependencies. Um, now that starts to sound kind of fancy, but I think uh, we all understand this model from using spreadsheets. The, the metaphor, I think, to think about is, can you make coding a rich, complex application as simple as using a spreadsheet? Spreadsheets, uh, dependency tracking of formulas and automatic dependency propagation is the bread and butter of spreadsheets. It's one of the key features that makes them useful, right? When you're using a spreadsheet and you update a cell, the contract that Excel gives you is typically instantly, or at least very quickly, unless you're in a huge spreadsheet, everything will be up to date. You're never worried about staleness. You're never thinking about caching. That complexity of dependency propagation is pushed down into the system, right? And I would note, I think this is a lesson that we've definitely learned in UI development. You could definitely say that reactive UI frameworks like uh, React.js give you something like this guarantee, right? They, you declare the UI you want and state and DOM are synced automatically. The problem that I see is that often in our web stacks, this reactivity is partial to one part of the stack. So in a common web application, your React UI, what it's faithfully representing is not all the state in your system. It's some view you currently have in this tab of some larger state that is you know, maybe primarily on a server. And that introduces a lot of complexity because all of a sudden you have your nice declarative spreadsheety React thing, but then you have at some point in your stack, you're going to start hitting data fetching, you're going to start hitting, uh, sending writes back up to the server. And uh, that's just a, an enormous source of mental model overhead, I think. On the flip side, uh, there have been some interesting research projects which come out from the other side. And people, for example, have literally tried to make UIs in things like Google Sheets. Um, there's a really neat project by Ted Benson and collaborators called Quilt that literally they use Google Sheets to power your entire backend and all your your you know UI templating and essentially um, the problem there is normal spreadsheets aren't really powerful enough to do that and they're not really architected the right way. So one way to think about what we were trying to do in Riffle is can you take the beautifully simple model of just uh, declarative dependency propagation um, and apply that to your entire data stack? So your mental model as a developer should be: I just have all the data locally. I'm just writing a spreadsheet that turns it into a UI and the system will take care of the rest. 
full stack reactivity. That's sort of principle number one. That makes that makes total sense, and I think you've touched on also like the the third principle, which I remember now is like the the unifying the UI state and sort of the the other app data. And if you really think about it, where do you even draw the line between something being UI state, something being app data? There is sort of like an arbitrary line. Maybe I think de facto in most today's web apps is the app data is like what you fetch. Over something like React query as your as your website boots up or you have it prehydrated, and the app state is more of like the in-memory stuff that if you reload the page, is poof, it's gone. <laughs> but ideally, most of the things should really be treated in a very similar way. When I'm thinking of a native Mac app, for example, like Finder, if I close a window and I come back. The same items are still selected. I'm still like roughly in the in the same position with the, the folders that I've selected and, and the hierarchy. And most web apps, I would actually suffer from that they they have like basically they're suffering from dementia when you <laughs> insert something in a form, and maybe you really need to look up every value, and maybe the form expires. You reload, everything is gone. That's, uh, I think everyone has like those terrible user experiences, and so treating everything as the same data, uh, I think is is a kind of a bold, but in my experience, like the the right step. And then if you can, um, therefore, as a conclusion, kind of like have all the data that you need to work with, have that locally. It simplifies everything to such a degree that it's really liberating. So that that's sort of the the third the principle and i think that's that's a really bold one that is i think the most provocative compared to the traditional way of building web apps today yeah exactly you know just like you said i think it can be a disrespectful user experience to lose people's valuable input even something like scroll position or like you said intermediate form state can be thing something that i put a lot of work into and i don't want to necessarily lose right now i think the deeper reason we end up with software like this isn't that people don't care. It's really that we've made it hard to do. So again, it's this technical defaults ruling the user experience situation that we talked about where, you know, imagine you're a product manager and you get a request to please persist this user input or share this user input across users. And the engineer says, oh man, that was previously React components data. And now I need to like re-architect where that data is stored and plummet through a bunch of places. And add a database column for it, blah, blah, blah. It's all this work. And the goal of having a unified system for all your state, it's not that all states should be treated the same. Definitely some state, you know, should be user local, device local, and so on. There, uh, Some state you want to reset on new sessions by default. Um, so you can think of that as ephemeral. But if you store it all in one system and manage it all in one system, the goal is that it becomes much easier to move between uh, these states, right? One example I love is that someone who's working on a collaborative app told me the state of whether a context menu is open in a spatial canvas app, they actually realized they needed it to be shared because when I open a context menu, my cursor is moving around. If you can't see the context menu I'm using, you don't really know what I'm doing. And so um, I think that's a perfect example of blurring these boundaries where something that seems like clearly a quote unquote local component state in a traditional framing might actually need to be uh, collaboratively synced or you know, maybe even persisted. So that's what I see as the goal of having this unified 
state management system. And in the Riffle work, um, that's basically the, the maximalist view we took is uh, no React state, right? Every single bit of state in the system flows through this one database and your UI is just derived from that one place. And uh, you can always reason about, essentially, the pixels on the screen are a function of the database. That's it, nothing else. And we found a lot of neat qualities that that design led to, along with a bunch of interesting challenges. And and I have to say, I was I was not on board with that when we got started. I was so attached to like everything is in React, and you have like things inside of React components, etc. And I remember Nicholas, he was like on the on the opposite side there, and so like no no no, like React should do as little as possible, and like have your state outside. And that didn't click quite back then for me. But step by step, I came around to it. And I'm now also like on a maximalist side of like most states should live outside of React. And for example, for Overtone, there's a very simple case where you, for example, for the app, for the playback of your player, like you want your playback to happen, to happen. you want to hear something, maybe you capture the, the time code of the, the current playback progress. And even if the app is not open, you want to still hear things. If you reload the app, um, you might just still want to recover at the, the correct playback position. So all of that state is kind of headless. So the state still lives on and therefore wouldn't quite make sense to have that be part of React you state. Sure, you could say you have like a headless React component, but that's already feels a bit backwards at that point. So once I've started embracing that, it was hugely liberating. And now I can start to reason about my state outside of the context of React components in the outside of React view state. So that took me a bit to get around to it, but I'm fully on board with that principle now as well. And you know, I'll, I'll mention, I don't think we're the we're not the only ones who've thought of this, right? I think um, the idea of having a reactive state graph separate from your UI tree is something that other web dev libraries have explored. Uh, MobX, Recoil, arguably even something like Redux, I think, uh, shows some of the power of having this sort of centralized uh, outside of your UI tree state management. Um, so uh, there's definitely, I think, uh, some broad recognition that this can be a powerful pattern for for some of the reasons you mentioned. You know, But I'll also mention like there are some challenges, right? And I mean, you've encountered some of these. I'd be curious to hear your take. Some of them that I think immediately come to mind for people are one, um, performance is always uh, an easy one. Like typically we expect button hovers and, you know, uh, selection changes to happen at 60, 120 Hertz. And we don't expect things like loading thousands of rows of data from our core data store to necessarily happen at the same speed. Um, and so that mismatch can be uh, an, an interesting thing to manage. Our motto, uh, Nicholas's motto to some extent is just make everything fast. If everything goes at 120 FPS, then you don't have a problem, right? <laughs> Easier said than done, but I think a fun a goal to shoot for. So far, most mostly what we've been talking about is conceptually a simplification and getting on board with that different way of thinking about your, your app on a conceptual basis. And I think for, for me, it took a little bit of time to ease into that and then be confronted with the new challenges that are raising. We, we'll, we'll go into the challenges in a second since we've encountered quite a few. But I think we didn't quite touch too much on the, the second principle you've motivated before, 
which is uh, the synchronous reactivity and like that should be as fast as possible we'll we'll go into the performance challenges there in a bit but when you've said synchronous reactivity as opposed to asynchronous reactivity what what are the why is this a principle like what is so important can can you motivate the the problem and the status quo and how riffles challenging that yeah absolutely this is a really important principle to me i think when we build web apps that have a server we assume a lot of asynchrony at many points so obviously going on the network to a server is a point of asynchrony even often loading data from uh, you know like a local disk right we think of as an asynchronous operation and because of that UI development typically has a lot of reasoning about asynchrony, which is a really hard thing to do as a programmer. Uh, for example, you might have a UI where there are loading states and everywhere throughout your app, you need to think about, am I still loading or do I have the data? And maybe you have a UI that's composed of different sections and some of them might be loaded already and others aren't. Um, you might have intermediate states to reason about. Like after I select something in a sidebar, there's some time where the main other pane of the app hasn't reacted to that yet. So it might still be showing the old thing that was there before I selected the new thing, or it might be showing a loading state while I'm loading the data. And my experience at least personally has been that we kind of accept this as just the way it is in UI development, but it's terrible. It's it's a lot of overhead to reason about. Um, there are many, many more states your system can be in when you have asynchrony, right? The, the vision for synchronous reactivity is uh, let's make it, again, feel more like a spreadsheet. So the way I want my UI to feel is that when I select something, on the next tick, on the next frame, every pixel in the UI has fully updated to reflect that new user input. And that's obviously good for users because they didn't have to wait. Developers, because you don't have to reason about the intermediate states. Uh, you can sort of think transactionally where the state of the world changes and transactionally we update a bunch of derived views and queries of that state, uh, which end up in the pixels of the UI. And uh, there was never any intermediate state exposed. And it's it's sort of a subtle point to get across, but my experience has been that when you work in a system like this, um, it just cuts a lot of complexity. Yeah, it's not just the simplification in terms of architecture that we collapse the stack from backend and API, et cetera, in all into the client. But that's like one giant dimension of complexity. But there's a se second, much less talked about vector of complexity, which is like, how is how are things related to each other? Can they be synchronously related? Or, can, or do they have to be asynchronously related? And this is where I think we're getting into the area of distributed systems. I'm sure we'll talk a lot more in future episodes about broader distributed systems where they're really needed, where you have your, you have a device, you're in the US, I'm in Europe, and so we are distributed. However, if we are starting to treat a local React app that's running in a single thread, and we're coordinating the various React use states, things with React use effect, we've kind of accidentally created a distributed system that's really hard to tame and where there's, there can be many unintended bugs and it just starts becoming a lot more complex to to think about so this is the other part where i think it really it can where riffle again liberates so much and simplifies and frees us of the uh, the accidental distributed systems problem that we have in most modern web apps yeah i you know 
I think two two principles that I think about. One is don't make something a distributed system if it really doesn't have to be. And two is if it has to be, someone smarter than me should do the distributed systems part, right? Uh, really, we should be providing abstractions that uh, allow us to not think about the hard parts most of the time. Uh, even, you know, I'm not a CRDT expert, but I know quite a bit about CRDTs and have done some work on developing CRDTs. But, and so I, you know, I probably know more about CRDTs than a lot of app devs, but I don't want to think about distributed systems when I'm building some product feature, right? And I think that is clearly one of the core challenges in the local first space that I think a number of projects and companies are trying to address, which is what are the good abstractions you can expose to app developers that allow them to reason about tricky distributed systems problems in a, in a straightforward way without needing to turn on your sort of distributed systems brain as much. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think the being confronted with distributed systems problems there is much more common than most app devs think. So most of the time when in React you use use effect that that hook to yeah somehow tame your local state then you already have a distributed systems problem things like react suspends and and so on that that's kind of like a a solution to address partially the the distributed systems nature that you have in react so i remember having when react suspends and all of those primitives came out i was kind of wondering Huh, how does that fit into our Riffle world here? Would Riffle at some point support React Suspense? And then at some point it clicked for me. No, that's like addressing a problem that we've already ruled out before. And we don't even have to think about that complexity at all. And uh, yeah, this is like an entirely different approach to addressing the problems that React Suspense, et cetera, is addressing in a, I would say, in a much simpler overall picture. Yeah, I think maybe to avoid overclaiming here, I'll say there are some trade-offs, right? I think often these approaches that involve concurrency are um, they're optimizing for either the reality of something like a slow network request or for sort of worst case performance, making sure that you keep some things running fast, even if other things are slow. And I think there's a different approach you can think about, which is uh, in a nutshell, just make everything fast. And as long as everything's fast, it'll be simple. If things get slow, you might end up with a worse experience than you might have in a system that you know uh, that is designed around concurrency. For example, maybe in a in a riffle style approach, um, if you're trying to synchronously paint frames and something is slow, you might just end up with a ton of dropped frames and sort of a frozen UI. Whereas in a system designed to account for that uh, with better concurrency support, you might uh, have you know a loading spinner and some things remain responsive. And so I think part of the challenge is figuring out how to how to balance those two approaches. And um, as we've seen in our work, I think sometimes you do need to account for the reality of sometimes you have to make a network request because you know, you're talking to an external service or something and you do need ways to model concurrency. It's just that I think we don't need to, I guess, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like not everything needs to be concurrent and some things can be fast. I think I don't have much game dev experience, but I, my understanding is that a lot of video games essentially, you know, they paint frames and they make sure every frame is fast and they don't drop frames because they make sure the frames are fast, right? And I wonder how much of that ethos we can apply to general UI development as well. 
So we've been referring to this thing Riffle now throughout this conversation. And clearly you and I are well aware of what Riffle is. And you've motivated what Riffle is supposed to be through the principles and sort of what you were hoping to achieve with it in theory. But in reality, what is Riffle? Riffle was a research project. And so our primary goal was to try to get some of these ideas into people's heads. But we did need a way to test them out and see, is this even possible? Is this really a good idea? And to do that, we built a simple prototype of reusing existing parts as much as possible. Uh, namely, we, we built on React.js as a view templating layer. And we built on SQLite, which is a popular relational database that can be embedded on devices and in the browser through WASM. And what Riffle is technically is a layer that sits between React and SQLite. And what it does is it lets you specify a bunch of SQL queries that turn a SQLite database into a React UI. And it gives you some hooks in your React UI to do things like query data in a component or make writes to your database. And it, you can think of it sort of as a state management framework built on top of SQLite for React that tries to realize some of these ideals we just talked about in a concrete way, right? Now, again, this uh, was just sort of a prototype to explore the ideas. And one challenge we faced early on was how do we really test out if this works in the kinds of contexts we care about, which are complex data intensive apps with pretty large amounts of data, relatively speaking, and interesting schemas and strict performance requirements. To do apps are kind of boring and don't really address any of those. And that's actually how we ended up collaborating with you on this. So um, maybe do you want to tell the audience a bit about how you got involved? Yeah, totally. We've been in touch since you worked on Cumbria. And I think we've been catching up once in a while. And then at some point, I learned about you thinking about this, this broader space and rethinking state management. With my background of Prisma, I'm obviously no stranger to thinking about state management. I've been thinking about how to make it simpler, typically more in a backend context. And for me, this was really the, the in, interesting foundation that you said, like, hey, why, why do you even want the backend? Uh, you want to build an app. You didn't quite say it like this, but this is the way how I, how I sort of picked it up and framed it in, in my head. And that was a really stimulating idea for me to say, like, actually, yeah, let's bring the database into the client. I was using a lot of MobX and Redux and those sort of things in the past. And they they worked, they made me productive, but they didn't have the properties that you mentioned before, that state wasn't persistent. It fundamentally treated state and data differently. I would fetch my data from, from a backend. It was a very interesting idea for me to have the data all there locally. So, and I was thinking about building my own music app for, for quite a while. And Riffle seemed like the perfect catalyst for me to really take a stab at it. And the only way how I could, could really make progress on such a big effort, mostly by myself, was to cut scope as much as possible. And uh, that's, that was a very simple math to say like, hey, we can cut the scope from the back end categorically, and I can focus all of my energy and time on building the best client possible. And a music client is no, nobody talks about, oh, that's the best music backend. People want the best music app. And that has led me to become the first design customer, the first design partner for Riffle. And that made a, a brilliant combination, I think. 
Yeah, I think one alignment and values that has really helped here is that um, you're trying to build a music app for power users, right? And I think power users often care about things like data density, latency. Um, you know, it's funny when you look at apps like Spotify, for example, and we've we've talked about this many times over the course of this collaboration. Spotify, their desktop app is quite slow often and also quite network reliant to a surprising degree. Many page transitions um, that we've encountered, even for data that is already locally cached, uh, for some reason has a lot of network access going on and you often get multi-second loading screens. And I think for serious music people like DJs, you know, some of your target audience for Overtone, I think of it a bit the same way that uh, serious email people like apps like Superhuman that respect their time and make them really fast at email. A serious music fan wants an app that feels good and not some, you know, loading screen filled consumer feeling app, right? And I think that was really aligned with some of the goals that we wanted to hit with the Riffle approach is basically, can you just throw all the music metadata in a SQLite database, use relational queries, which are really good fit for things like joining together albums and artists and tracks, things like that and power the kind of uh, power user experience that you wanted to build. Exactly. And I think this was literally also like the starting point for our first prototypes to do a data model and kind of employing similar ideas that you use in backend development, where you first lay out your different tables. In this case, I didn't actually create a user table. I still don't have a user table since the app just runs locally but I did create a tracks table and an albums table and a playlist table. And we threw that together. And within the shortest period of time, we had a fully functional, very crude music app. And step-by-step, step, yeah, we, we, I think we've been looking for reasons why it doesn't work and we never found that reason. And then the months passed and the collaboration now lasted, I think for, for almost like two years and you've, confirmed the hypothesis that you had with your with your PhD thesis at MIT for for Riffle. And this made for a brilliant partnership. Yeah, I think, you know, one of our goals with working with you was that, uh, first of all, yes, like you said, if it went well, which I think it has gone better than we expected, then it's more valuable confirmation, right? That like a real serious app works with this than like a to-do MVC demo. So I think that was one thing. But also, the, the primary goal was not that. The primary goal was to uncover what the real challenges are of building real software in this model. And maybe you could talk a bit about, you know, throughout the project, you've been a, a very useful critic and sort of have pointed out a lot of the, the problems and challenges that come from working in this way. And I'm curious what your take has been on what the biggest problems we've had to solve have been. Totally. So I... As a person, I like pioneering things. So I have probably a higher risk appetite and I can deal with like a couple of more paper cuts temporarily than someone else who is just looking for the, the best well-trodden path. So this, this made me a viable partner here as opposed to, to someone who only touches the technology that is already well-proven over the years. And so I was rather looking for an advances on a, in a broader scale, like on an architectural level and just something that in the long run can help me reduce and avoid complexity as much as possible, even though temporarily possibly dealing with a, enduring a few more paper cuts here and there. 
And given that I am both comfortable in the shoes of an app builder, as well as in the shoes of a tools builder, I think I was uniquely positioned to switch between those, those two modes to unblock me, um, et cetera, and to have enough imagination to understand, oh, this is not a categorical flaw in the way how things are right now. We can fix that through better tooling or refactoring of the API. This, um, I think it was kind of in, in waves where there was some waves of immense productivity and things been working much better than, than expected. And at times we've hit some walls of doubting, is this ever going to work? Are those principles, the, the ones that we've picked, are those the right ones? Is it a good idea to keep our entire state graph synchronous? Can we make it fast enough? So we've been hitting those challenges. And the, the ones that are most memorable to me was really around performance. I can motivate it from, from my perspective. I've set it for, for myself as a challenge. I want to build a music app that's fundamentally built with web technology that should still feel as fast as a native app. So that means if you're now looking at a 60 hertz display or 120 hertz display, if you scroll, if you interact with the app in some way, it should work without frame drops. And given that all state management, everything, everything that changes on your screen is fundamentally a result, an implication of state change, and that this happens smoothly, it needs to happen in 120 hertz. So uh, that basically gives you per frame, yeah, less than four milliseconds to do everything, state change, render, react, etc. So performance was always top of mind. And I think that where we've been going back and forth, oh, is it ever going to work? Oh yes, we can make it work. And uh, that has kept us busy for, for quite a while. And I think we can go more into depth what that what that meant but that's that's the top challenge that comes to mind besides a few like paper cuts and also figuring out like how do we the the starting point even though this is a local first podcast riffle up to this point was mostly local only and uh, just in a later point we're making we're introducing the the collaboration aspect to make it truly local first but um, yeah, I think performance has been the, the major challenge that we've been facing. You know, the way I think about performance in this stack is that the role of the database is to make things fast. Uh, what a database does is you give it nice declarative queries and it figures out how to make them fast because some smart people worked very hard and you didn't have to do that work, right? And I think a lot of the challenges we've hit basically boil down to um, we don't quite have the right database for this use case or shape yet. A lot of UI stuff, I think, boils down to the problem of incremental computation. Incremental computation is a, is a pretty broad you know, computer science term that basically means I have a function and the input changes a little bit. Can we figure out how the output changed without starting over from scratch on the fresh input, right? And this is a problem that people have approached from a number of sides. Uh, the sort of programming languages community has approached this problem. You know, incremental computation is a keyword that uh, can highlight a lot of the work there. But the databases community has also thought a lot about this problem. They often call it incremental view maintenance. Um, you know, an example might be, I have a big join on thousands of rows and I add one row to the table. How does the result change, right? And I think a lot of the reasons we've had performance challenges is that our 
technical stack has mostly been based on SQLite, which is a database that is sort of built for UI, but is not incremental. Uh, we did some explorations with a database called SKDB, which is actually a SQL database designed to be incremental. And um, that yielded some pretty interesting and promising results. We actually published a paper at the WIST conference, which talked about some of our positive results from working with that technology. I think ultimately you ended up deciding to stick with SQLite for the production overtone app because you wanted a sort of a more, uh, you know, mature database to work with as your foundation. But the way I see the problem is really that we sort of need the right database that has the right primitives to make UI development of this sort fast. And maybe the perfect database for that doesn't quite exist yet. Uh, I think that's that that's the missing piece and the ultimate, you know, decade ahead, if this really panned out uh, version of this stack, I think would include that database. Yeah, totally. And I, I think it's a matter of like to, now it's the early 2024. Who knows, maybe next year the, the world has already moved closer in the direction that is a good foundation for, for something like Riffle. The, the audience shouldn't have the takeaway of like SQLite is slow. Quite the opposite. I think this was the insight that SQLite is incredibly fast and remarkably capable was the foundation to embark on this project in the first place. And Nicholas has been, through his prior work at Apple, done a lot of work related to SQLite and I think related to, to FoundationDB. And uh, that was one of the key insights that we say, like, actually, SQLite is so fast and now can be embedded into web applications through WASM that it can be a replacement technology for something like MobX and, and Redux. So before WASM, et cetera, and all of the optimizations that have gone into that, this wouldn't have been possible. But now that's possible, this allowed for a better foundation for to deal with complexity, since if you build something with MobX, et cetera, you still need to wrangle all of your JavaScript objects by yourself. Like if you want to have like a filter or a map or a group by, you got to implement all of that yourself. And the app user experience that I want to enable with Overtone is this will be very common. Think about it like in Notion when you have the tables feature and you have you configure a few sorts, you configure some group buys, you have different views. Those are all things that get very boilerplate to implement with JavaScript. And those are all things databases are super good at. And this is what got me over the fence to say like, actually, let's embrace uh, what a database is good at and build a bit of like the React nice to have things around it. And I think the the core of what Riffle is, is really like that combination of a underlying SQLite database and put a reactivity system on top of it. And reactivity system in that regard, like how React components compose and if one thing changes then the other thing updates to the minimal degree, uh, that's what Riffle is doing. And a very simple idea with many implications and remarkably powerful. Yeah, you know, I, I think uh, you're, you're right. And it extends beyond performance too. I think um, when you think about the requirements of what a UI needs, I think that when you remove all the layers that typically sit between a backend relational database and a UI, those layers were there for a reason. They were solving some problem and you end up needing to find ways to solve those problems. So uh, often UIs need tree-shaped data to hydrate a tree of a UI, right? Um, often 
front-end developers don't already know SQL. And often, actually, SQL, we found, can be a mediocre language for certain parts of UI development. Um, it often just feels a little bit too low-level or something. Obviously, you know, having worked on Prisma, you, I think, have experience with some of those problems in the back-end context, but I think some of them become even more apparent in a front-end context. Um, some of the, you know, I, I don't want to necessarily, necessarily say the ORM word because I think that's a touchy topic, but I think some of the roles of associating different kinds of models with each other and things like that, there's sort of sometimes feels like there's a need for, for that kind of layer, right? Uh, I think, uh, you know, in our technical prototype stack, what we ended up doing was stuffing a GraphQL layer in there between SQLite and the UI, you know, because you're a GraphQL expert and that helped alleviate some of these problems. But again, I think I see, and I think we, we see that more as a, as a shim, right? Like sort of a layer that shouldn't need to be there, but it's there because the database didn't quite have the right shape. And I think uh, some of that reflects that maybe no one has ever designed a database specifically for this role of being embedded so closely to a user interface. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, th I think about it this way. We want to take one or two steps forward, but in order to do that, we also had to take a step backwards. And the, the step forward that we took is that we get the power of a database, that we get all of those semantics that a database give us, whether it's group by and sorting and nested selects, et cetera, all, all of those great things that would really um, freeze up our work and make some things that we would need to imperatively implement in JavaScript makes that declarative. However, the steps that we're taking back is that um, SQLite is quite limited. It doesn't have many data types. It doesn't even have a Boolean type, et cetera. So you need to do a lot of translation between the way how SQLite understands the world and how someone who's like a, a, a more sophisticated TypeScript developer as me, I'm used to having all of my fancy TypeScript types and to create a good translation layer between that embedded SQLite database and what I want in my JavaScript. Now we got to reinvest in that. And so you've mentioned GraphQL. That was sort of a technology that I was quite familiar with from prior work. And I think that's sort of a temporary usage until we we teach SQLite some of the tricks that TypeScript already knows and until we create a, a better mapping in, in between that. But that's certainly been another, for me, less of a challenge, but it still requires quite a bit of work to make SQLite feel kind of native in a TypeScript setting. Some people, I think, believe that one of the sort of original sins of computing, so to speak, is that programming languages and databases really split into separate fields. And the idea of like the system that you use to wrangle your runtime in memory state and the system that you use to persist and query your persisted state are so separate in the way you think about them. Um, you, historically, you have systems like Smalltalk, for example, which have much less of a separation. They're closer to you have objects in your language and you're just saving those objects and reloading them. And there's much less of a gap there, right? And something I found interesting about some of the more recent work you've been doing in this space is, you know, you've been working on tools that make it easier to close that gap and let you think about the kinds of in-memory objects that you want to be thinking about in your program um, and turn those into the things that you want to be storing in your database and querying and vice versa. And I think that's, again, one of the really interesting challenges in this space um, is 
handling that impedance mismatch between a relational database and uh, your TypeScript code or whatever. Do you want to talk a bit about that area you've been working on? Yeah, totally. I think this is also like a for for you like a broader umbrella of of your work that contextualizes everything you've been doing over the past few years and will probably still be the foundation for for the the years to come is malleable software. For me, a common theme seems to be all around schema management and kind of fighting that impedance mismatch from from different different contexts. And so I've been trying uh, to to make that simpler in the context of of Riffle and in a way that nicely brings us back to the initial topic that we talked about with Cumbria, since it's not just already hard to deal with that impedance mismatch between your application types that are expressed, for example, in TypeScript and the way how a database thinks about how it stores the, the data. But both can also change over time. You want to implement new features, et cetera. So your database schema might change, your app types change. So you also got to deal with with a schema change management here, which uh, hopefully we'll we'll get to bring some of the goodness of Cambria in into the fold here as well. Schema migrations is still sort of a untamed problem, but we're we're getting ahead of ourselves here. So if Someone in the audience thinks about, okay, Riffle sounds great. Can I use it? You've been mentioning that you've been doing this as part of your PhD at MIT. What is the current state of Riffle? Yeah, I get asked this question from time to time. So it's probably good to provide an update. Um, So Riffle was a research project fundamentally. The goal was to explore this idea and see if it was possible or a good idea. Um, It ended up being part of my PhD thesis, and I wrapped up grad school. Um, and at this point, sort of the, the core Riffle project itself is, uh, is, I would say it's basically over. We published a paper at the WIST HCI conference this year that summarizes some of what we learned. However, uh, the ideas are not dead. So actually, you, Johannes, have been uh, sort of carrying the torch forward of some of these ideas and building them into a new library that you're building um, that is sort of replaced Riffle as the foundation for your work on Overtone. And so maybe you could talk a bit about uh, your ongoing work there. Yeah, totally. So for me, what's been the, the most valuable thing over the course of the past few years in terms of our collaboration is A, that collaboration, that partnership, and really doing a lot of research and exploratory work together. And then yeah, be having sort of like a prototype implementation of what that could look like. But it was really a prototype implementation that could prove out those different ideas. But to make actual progress with Overtone, I was running into a lot of the limitations of the those prototypes where it was working on the happy path. The not so happy path was unexplored and it started causing a bunch of problems for me. So this caused me not to throw out the baby with the bathwater and reach back for something like MobX or, or Redux. But uh, it has led me to, yeah, wear, put on my DevTool Builder hat again. And I started productionizing the ideas of Rifflemore. And I did that under a new umbrella, which is a library called Livestore. It is not yet open source. I'm hoping to get it open source sometime this year. 
uh, right now. If someone is curious to give it a try, it is possible right now. If you are sponsoring the, the project, that's a topic for another day. I'm hoping to make the development of LiveSource sustainable. And through GitHub sponsorship is one way how I'm currently planning to do so. But yeah, the ideas of Riffle live on um, possibly multiple projects in the future, LiveStore being one of them. I'm sure your work on Riffle has inspired more folks to implement similar ideas in, in the future. So that's that's what I can contribute right now. Yeah, I'm really excited to see where your work with LiveStore goes. You know, I think uh, you have some some cool stuff cooking and places you're trying LiveStore, and I'm sure you're going to keep uh, learning a ton more about uh, where this approach works and new challenges, right? But it's very exciting to me that these ideas are living on in your work. Yeah, and so Jeffrey and I are still touching base every so often, and I share my updates and progress on LiveStore. And now, step-by-step, step, I get to make progress on some parts that we haven't quite got to yet while working on the Riffle Research Project and where I get to unlock some progress where Jeffrey thinks, oh, yes, finally, we're getting to that point uh, that we haven't gotten to while working on Riffle. And I now I'm I have to face all of those bigger implications that we've been well aware of, but we just haven't gotten to them yet, whether it's schema migrations or making the technology actually local first. So introducing syncing and collaboration capabilities. And I want to do so in a way that is compatible with different kinds of syncing approaches, whether it might be something like Electric SQL or possibly something like AutoMerge or YJS in the future. So there, in a way, we've come really far and in a way we are just getting started. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. So we've been talking a lot about SQLite, Riffle, LiveStore, but you've since moved on to, to new projects. So, and I think you're still at Ink and Switch even more so than before. I think you're now full-time at Ink and Switch and are already in new projects. So which sort of problems are you currently looking at? Yeah, so since finishing my PhD earlier, I guess last year over the summer, uh, I've now for a few months been full-time at the Ink and Switch Research Lab, um, where Peter Van Hardenberg again is the director. Um, uh, you know, they're where a lot of the look, they coined the term local first, right? And so they're what got me into this space in, in some sense, and I'm really excited to be full-time there. I'm leading our malleable software research track now. And so that's basically a research track where we explore these ideas around customizable software. And we really are interested particularly in the intersection of the local first architecture and the malleable software agenda. And we have a lot of ideas for how those two things can be kind of complementary to each other, as I described earlier. Um, we have some fun experiments brewing. Um, one thing is that we're increasingly trying to use our own local first tools. So one little project I worked on in my past few months there is spinning up a writing tool that we use internally at the lab. Um, we used it to write our last essay that we published. And that's based on the auto-merge stack that the lab has developed. And it's a really nice way to sort of... Um, Again, just get some authentic experience using the stack and understanding the challenges and the and the and the good stuff, right? Um, we're then kind of using that stack as a foundation to explore a lot more speculative stuff going forward. You know, some of the ideas we're excited to explore are 
the potential for version control in a local first environment. And if you have um, a layer like AutoMerge in your stack, which is really designed around not just local first data, but also storing uh, past history of documents, what can you do with that potential to unlock for end users? Um, and another theme we're going to explore um, and have started exploring a bit already is not just data uh, in a local first way, but code in a local first way. So if you uh, put code on people's devices in a way that they can uh, mod themselves, what does that unlock in terms of customizing our software? This is sort of a fully maximalist local first approach. And it's something that Peter and the lab have explored in the past, um, but it's, uh, you know, there's a, a project called Pushpin, which I encourage people to look at if they haven't heard of it, which is basically uh, an exploration of what happens if you have a local first data plus flexible tools that can op uh, that can operate on that data. And I'm excited to keep pushing in those directions and see uh, if we can basically give people more control and empowerment over their computing experience on top of this local first data stack. That is incredible. I'm very tempted to also somehow contribute more in those various topics that you've been mentioning, but my day has just so many hours and I think I have still a lot of work ahead of me with Livestore and, and Overtone. However, I think there will be many problems that will have positive overlap. I think we're still not done with the Cambria problem. Maybe we get to collaborate there in the future. We've been doing also some really interesting exploratory work around what does it mean for an app to have version control for, for users? That is something I'm also really interested in. So I'm, I'm sure we'll, we'll get another step at collaborating on some project together. But yeah, Jeffrey, I've been looking forward to this for a long time and really excited to share what we've been working on over the past few years with a broader audience. And thank you so much for, for taking the time and sharing all of those stories and, and insights with us. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to the Local First FM podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode and haven't done so already, please subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening. Please also consider telling your friends about it if you think they could be interested in Local First. Thank you again to Expo and Crab Nebula for supporting this podcast. See you next time.